Welcome to episode 20 of Redboard Rewind. My special guest today is Mike Stomach of The Racing Dudes. Today we're breaking format and having a free-flowing conversation about horizontal wagers, why he handicaps a race card from back to front, and how lessons from the poker world have helped him in horse racing. This is Redboard Rewind. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Mike Samich of The Racing Dudes. Mike, how are you doing today? Doing good, Spencer. How about you? I'm hanging in there. Just went and saw Star Wars last night for the first time. Can say I was sadly disappointed. Uh, you and me both actually got home from the theater around 1 a.m. this morning. I love going to the uh, the latest possible show. You end up in the theater all by yourself, and you kind of enjoy it in your own way. But uh, it was I, I, I was entertained, but it wasn't the ending I was hoping for. No, definitely not. I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before or not, but I'm just going to start you off with a couple quick, easy questions. When you're, with your handicapping process, kind of break it down from start to finish. Yeah, so I'm, I'm mainly a, a multi-race player, so I, I play mostly pick four and pick five sequences. Um, and what I like to do is I, I usually handicap the card twice. Um, so I usually handicap from the last race on the card to the first race on the card uh, about a day or two out. And then the, uh, the day before, the day of the races, I'll handicap first race to last race. Uh, I kind of changed that up about a year ago uh, when I was finding that I was, I was missing more later races in the cards and hitting earlier. I realized that, that I, when I would focus on the, the early races and then the late races, the late races wouldn't get the same attention that the early ones would. So uh, I kind of switched up how I'd handicap and handicap back to front first and then front to back. Um, and then once I kind of pick the races that I like, I look for singles and then decide, you know, what I think sequences will pay. And once I get that, I'll figure out how much I want to then play into those sequences and, and kind of go from there. Handicapping back to front, front to back. Do you ever do like, do you feel like you're a better handicapper at night or in the early morning? Cause I know a lot of my friends try to handicap earlier in the morning. I would definitely say handicapping at night is not when I'm the most effective. Um, I actually usually do my best work during the middle of the day. Um, I, I try not to adjust too much during the day once I make picks. Um, so a lot of times I'll have uh, the, the next couple of days forms out in front of me when I'm watching a specific track so that I can, I can handicap and focus on that, but still kind of enjoy the races and be able to take a break. Uh, I, I think if you're really doing your due diligence, it's tough to sit there and stare at a form for a couple hours uh, and be as sharp as possible. So uh, I, I like to have a little 20 minute gaps and then take a break and then 20 minutes, take a break and make sure I, I put forth the best effort in every race. What would you consider yourself as a handicapper? Are you more of a class handicapper, pace? Well, I think I think you have to start with pace more than anything else. Um, I think it's the easiest way to find long shots that, that are not necessarily, that don't jump out at you on paper um, because the pace is going to really define how the race is going to be set up and it's going to give horses and jockeys tactical advantages. So for me, um, the first thing I'm going to look at is pace, uh, what, what the pace is set up, what the pace set up in the race is. Um, I, I love on turf stretching out, especially if they have inside posts, uh, especially a place like Gulfstream where, uh, you know, turf holds speed a little bit better than some other spots. Uh, you can get some, some nice prices there. And then after that, it, it really is, a lot of it is, is class and who's, who's dropping in class and who's facing easier fields. Uh, I'm not as big of a replay person as a lot of people are. I will watch some, especially with two-year-olds. Uh, I want to understand, you know, how they came down the lane, how green they were. Um, if, if I think they have a chance to improve just in their general uh, mental ability as a horse um, more than anything else. But to me, a lot of it is, uh, you know, trying to understand what the pace setup's going to be, how the jockeys are going to react, and then why are the horses in the race? Um, oftentimes, I'll play horses because trainers are doing something that's out of their norm. And anytime you see, you know, I, I often admit, I'm not the smartest person in the room, man. These trainers and these, these jockeys, they know more about horses than I do. 
But if they're doing something that I think is, is unique, especially for their specific styles, that piques my interest and catches my eye because that usually means the horse is going to fire or is live. So I'll usually put those horses on tickets as well. Usually for me, if you see a first time out trainer, win, win with one, I like to really make a note of that and watch the horse coming back a second time. And then I usually upgrade their first time starters for the rest of the week, hoping I can maybe find another spicy pick. I did a lot of that with David Donk at Saratoga this year. I kind of got some good turf winners out of him. Uh, actually, I got some questions. I was talking with my guy Vinny from uh, Real Dynasty, and he actually had a couple questions for you too. When do you like to use the all button in these multi-race sequences? Man, that's, uh, so that's a tough question. Um, I think the all button is underutilized. I'm, I'm someone who uses it probably more than most. Um, my number one reason is if I think there's a, just a terrible favorite. Um, if I think there's a horse that's going to go off at, at three to five or four to five, but I can't find the opinion that I like in the race. Um, you know, if I, I like a couple horses that mediocre, like, you know, not a strong opinion that are, you know, that five to one, 10 to one range, but really the numbers say that anyone could win the race. The pace setup is, is kind of messy. Uh, specifically if there's absolutely no pace in the race, you're not sure who's going to really send. Then you're trying to read what jockey's going to go there. Um, so for me, the all button is really a, it, it's, you need to catch a price if you're doing it right. And, and I would, I would generally not do it in, in really small or really large fields. I'm looking for like the six to eight horse fields where I think you can absolutely catch a bomb. I want to take it. I want to have an opinion in big fields because that really separates you and pick four and pick five tickets. Um, and, and my background is, is actually professional poker. And so I look at these pick four and pick five tickets. It's almost as tournaments where you have to find ways to separate yourself from the other people. Um, because that's how you're really going to get the big scores. You need to eliminate other tickets while giving yourself the advantage to have the chance to have the most unique style winner possible. And that to me is when you hit the all button in those middle legs and, and the big fields you're looking for singles or really not trying to single favorite usually. That's, that's the other thing that can separate you. We're definitely going to go back on the poker background for sure. Something with the all button for me is when you're trying to find that right bomb. And I would wonder if people like who hit the all button multiple times in a month or, you know, in a week of playing, how many times it works out that they actually end up do finding the bomb. It'd be interesting to do a study on that and see how often you were right to hit the all button or if that, stupid chalk just ends up getting the job done. Well, I mean, chalk wins, what, 33% of the time? And that's, that, if you look at that just that simply, then you got to make sure that you're hitting, you're hitting a nice horse every time you do it. What I generally, in my head, what I'll, I'll often say is, okay, if I think, you know, if there's eight horses in the race, am I getting at least eight to one on the winner? Because I need at least eight to one in my mind to justify hitting the all button there, um, which means I usually need to like multiple horses over that price. My other kind of rule of thumb is at some point, if you go over half the field, you should really be staring at that all button because the worst thing you can do is play, you know, eight of 10 or play six of eight and be eliminated by one of the other two when it only costs you an additional 25% of your ticket cost to play the other two horses. Um, because, you know, a lot of people don't look at it this way, but if, if there's eight horses in the field and you put four on your pick four ticket, um, hitting the all button costs double. If you have a single, adding a second course costs double. So if you're huge opinions on the single and you're going four of eight in another leg, I would argue you should double your ticket by hitting the all button versus adding a second horse to back up your single. That's super interesting because I'm not much of a multi-race player. And for me, I remember specifically, I think it was two years ago when Raging Bull was in a like last weekend stake at Saratoga, I decided to play against and went four or five deep. And everyone's like, well, you, why didn't you put Raging Bull for going six deep? And I said, I, if I'm going to go four or five deep, I just don't want to have that type of horse that's going to be eight to five, seven to five. I feel like I'm just losing equity then. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that in a lot of cases, especially if you, I mean, to me, there's this kind of different ways that you can play favorites and favorites really are the key in multi-race betting. Um, they're the most single horse in every single race. They're usually going to, if you beat four favorites in a pick four and you don't beat them with anyone over five to one, you'd be shocked at what the payouts are. I mean, look at what the Stronach five pays when the mm-hmm. favorites, you know, when the second choice wins every race, it pays thousands of dollars. Um, so it's really all about beating favorites. And, and so I would, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with throwing them off your ticket. And I, in my mind, I think you kind of look at it in a couple ways. It's a used horse. It's a defensive used horse, which means, hey, I don't want this horse to beat me because I have big opinions in other spots. And, and logically, it is the best horse or it's an absolute shock. Um, I, I don't like, you know, I, I think you, the more stands you take in these big sequences, the better off you're going to be long term. It, it's going to create more volatility in your play. But with volatility can come with big time scores, which is really what makes you profitable long term. I mean, if you, you try and hit $100 pick fours every day, you're going to lose money time and time and time again. You need to find you know, for me, I'm, I'm looking for pick fives that pay between ten and 15000 because those are the ones that carry quarters, let alone months. Especially, too, when people people are always trying to, like, you know, play that nice small $28 ticket because it fits their bankroll. For me, if I'm looking in a sequence and I don't like, you know, the pick five, right, if I'm spending $80, I'll be like, well, I should just come back and play two doubles. It's cheaper, and it's what can fit my bankroll at that point in time. It also gives you guaranteed uh, pricing. I mean, the beautiful, beautiful thing about a daily double, which I think is, is definitely one of the more underutilized bets in racing, is that it actually tells you what it's going to pay. You know, in pick five, you're really, you're, you're having to figure out, okay, who are other people playing? How are they going to play? What's the sequence going to end up paying? And then setting a budget off that. Whereas a daily double, it tells you right there, hey, you know, play the one one double, it's going to pay $20. So it gives you a lot more, a lot, you can put a lot more math behind your picks and be able to actually strategically look at how much is this going to pay if I bet it. And then you're able to pit fire. Um, I often will play doubles into every race of a pick five I play if I really like a horse. If I have a single, I'm almost always playing the double with that horse. Because so I, I would challenge people. The two things that I would say about, about multi-race betting, I would challenge people, don't play any sequence where you're singling a favorite. Try it for a month. No favorite single. And see what happens. You're going to find out that your, your tickets pay a lot more um, and they're going to get a lot shorter because you're going to end up playing a lot fewer sequences, but you're going to, your, your specific sequences are going to be much tighter. Um, and then the other one, I, I just never, ever build a ticket before you've handicapped the whole sequence. I think that's one of the biggest uh, flaws that you see in a lot of players is that they'll look through a race and or a, a set of four races and they'll say, okay, I'm going to use the one and the two in the first race. And then I'm going to use the one, two, and three in the second race. And then the one and the two in the third race and my budget's $48. So I can pick three horses in the last race. And that kind of thinking, it, it really puts you behind the eight ball if you're, if you're structuring the ticket as you go and trying to fit that ticket into a specific budget. Um, personally, I think it's really important that you look at the whole sequence, look at who you like, figure out what you think the sequence will pay if those hit horses that you like hit, and then determine how much of your bankroll you're willing to risk on that. It's a different way to look at it, but it's going to, to allow you to understand which sequences are actually profitable sequences and which ones you're just kind of chasing money with. I think too, it's interesting when you talk about don't, don't play a favorite. I can't remember if it was Dick Mitchell or Quinn or one of the handicapping books, but for pick threes, it specifically says if you're picking two favorites in that sequence of three races, you can't play that sequence. It's not going to pay enough per times that you're going to miss. Like a, a pick three with two favorites, probably what in the full $30, $50 range. So, I mean, if you're going to play a big enough ticket and you miss five or six of the next, then you're in the, you're in the red already for it. Yeah. And that's, you're lucky if it pays, you know, 30, 50 bucks. That's the crazy part about it. I mean, if you want to really, every now and then I will really hammer a pick three, like I'll play a $50 pick three that's straight. Um, and, and maybe one or two of them are favorites, but if you're going two, three, four horses deep in races and pick threes and you're using favorites, uh, you're going to need to 
hit some big prices around those favorites to have any shot at being profitable. Um, and that's why, you know, like I said, in these multi-race wagers, it's all about beating favorites. So it's, it's what favorites can you find are vulnerable and what horses are the most likely to beat those vulnerable favorites. And that, that makes all the difference in the world. For me too, for not being a multi-race better, I'm mostly just been trying to stick to win bets. And my challenge this year will be to kind of go up the class ladder and start at maiden races and become profitable with win betting and then maybe move into place and show and then the exact and the daily double. That way I'm kind of teaching myself as I go throughout the year to revamp my handicapping and really like learn each class level as you go up because class to me is the most important thing in racing. Yeah, I think it's it, class is huge, obviously. I mean, it, it, there's certain certain classes. I mean, it, speaking of favorites to beat, right? Like when you have maiden special weight or maiden claim winnings going against winners for the first time and they're a huge favorite, that's a great angle to play against the favorite, right? And you learn that as you look at class handicapping, how and where can I beat these horses? Um, and I, I love your idea of actually specifically looking at styles of races and looking at specific bets and figuring out where you're profitable. I actually used to play everything. I used to bet win. I used to bet place. I used to bet tribe, supers, the whole kit and caboodle, right? Um, about uh, two and a half years ago now, I built out a spreadsheet and recorded every single bet I made for about four months. Um, and what I found was that I was had a positive ROI and pick fours and pick fives and a negative ROI in every other bet. Um, and, and one of the articles I wrote, I write for racingdude.com, I write handicapping 301, which goes over specific things that I look for around betting strategy around, um, just, you know, different angles that I use. The first article I wrote was called, uh, know yourself. And essentially it just says, if you want to be profitable at horse racing, you need to know what you're good at and then focus on what you're good at because that there's so many options out there, so many different types of bets. And if you're looking at a race and you're trying to say, okay, I want to bet a triple. And then you're looking at the same race and betting a pick four, you need to handicap that race in completely different ways. What horse finishes third is very different than what horse can win the race. Uh, and people will often say, okay, I'm going to use the one, two, three in the pick four. I'm going to use the one, two, three in the try. And that's, if you're doing that, you, you need to kind of take a step back. Are those really the three most likely horses to win and finish first, second, and third? Because uh, you're looking for different things in different ways. I know for me, when I do my write-ups for the Daily Gallop, I usually try to include two to four horses in a write-up. And the first two are going to be my picks for the win. And then the be- next two will be, you know, interesting horses to add underneath at usually good prices. And sometimes I'll be, you know, 50%, 75% for my first two picks for the day, but then I'll end up hitting a lot of interesting underneath long shots. So I just try to give everybody like not just the four classic, you know, favorite second choice, third choice, fourth choice, but and add some extra horses in there to try and make it at least interesting to read. Yep. That's a good strategy. And I bet when you're looking at that and you're figuring out, okay, who, who is the, that third or fourth place horse at the price? A lot of times you don't think that horse can win, but they're great underneath. And so that's an example of where you don't use them in the pick four, but you do use them underneath. A lot of times that's the, the closer that's 24, 25 to one that's going to pick up some pieces. But the horse that you might want to use on top that, that, you know, let's say a speed horse that could end up being low speed in a race and it's 20 to one, that's a pick four horse. Whereas the closer horse who's going to pick up the pieces is more of a try horse. And, and using them both is probably doesn't make sense in, in both type of bets. So uh, I think it's a great strategy to kind of say, hey, here's the win focus horses and then these are the kind of the ones that can you can play underneath and see if you can hit a price on i know earlier you had talked about uh, the stronic five and how well it pays another question from Vinny was do you pay attention to the takeouts at tracks when you play your multi-race tickets uh so i what another but you know i mentioned focus on what you're good at mm-hmm. i usually only play one or two tracks at, at a specific time um, I, I think if you try and play more than that you're you're really diminishing your ability to understand what trainers do what I, like i said i, I like I like knowing tracks very well. So I understand what, when a trainer does something that's out of the norm, I need to be able to catch that. I need to be able to understand, you know, I, I hit a huge price because at Gulfstream last year, because De La Serta debuts his best horses on big days. 
and doesn't really debut on other days. And he was a 26 to one shot on uh, Florida Derby day that got home last year. Um, so just knowing those little things about trainers and when they're going to specifically do things allows you to be really successful at track. So for me, um, I'm mainly focused uh, on a track to track basis. So right now I'm almost hundred percent focused on Gulfstream. Uh, I'm looking at Santa Anita every now and then, but, but not too seriously. Um, and then I'll play low takeout wagers. So I love the strong five. I love a $1 ticket with a low takeout because for me, for someone who's, who's not singling favorites and who's willing to single in two or three legs of that, it's a great bet because I can, I can cash a monster ticket in that. Um, and then I'll play, I'll, I will play any carryover pick four, or pick five. Um, as long as it's not a jackpot carryover. Uh, but if there's any, any mandatory takeout, pick four, pick five or pick six, I'm all about that because I believe that, you know, at a, at a 15 to 20% handle, I'm, Probably, I'm well, I'm profitable at 15%, 20% over pick fours and pick fives right now. Um, if you move that, that edge down to 6 or 7%, which is usually what you get when you see these, these uh, carryover pools, I am more than willing to just take a shot at a track that I don't know as well because you only have a certain amount of opportunity to do that. So for me, uh, anytime there's a pick five carryover, I'm probably playing at that track. Um, anytime that the strong five is up, I'm playing that right now. Um, and then anytime these mandatory pick six payout days, I'll, I'll have a couple tickets in those. The one thing that I find so surprising about you talk about playing all these carryovers, uh, I have a thing called carryover chatter for the Daily Gallop. And something I've noticed a lot is when Mountaineer is running, they almost carry over at least once a week. Turfway is carrying over once a week. And there was a $70,000, $80,000 carryover at Turf Paradise last weekend. I was, and somebody obviously hit it. And just people who aren't willing to, they just want to play their Keenelands and their Belmont. Like, there's definitely money to be made at these lower level tracks. Oh yeah. I mean, someone took home $71,000 yesterday at uh, Turf Paradise hitting mm-hmm. the pick five, the double carryover. that was, I think it was a hundred thousand, something like that going into it. Um, and those are, when you look at it, you know, rarely do you get to play for free. And a lot of those smaller tracks don't get the huge handle. I mean, the, the Turf Paradise one actually got a monster, monster handle, but a lot of those tracks don't get as big of a handle as you need to really be beneficial. So if you, you know, let's say you have a 20% takeout and there's a hundred thousand in the pool, there needs to be $500,000 worth of new money bet into that pool to be a, a $0 game, right? Because you have a hundred sitting there. If they take a hundred out, they're putting the hundred back in. you have 500,000 in the pool. If 500,000 was bet that day, you so rarely get that opportunity to play for zero takeout in any gambling game. If it's sports betting, if it's, you know, at a casino, if it's cards, if it's whatever, there's always a takeout except for these unique opportunities in horse racing where there isn't. And if you, uh, if you're seriously looking at it as something that you want to make money at, you have to take advantage of every one of those opportunities if it's something that you, you are good at. Um, so I, I will often, this is the one, one of my knocks on myself is I'll often force tickets into some of those carryovers where I probably shouldn't be playing because my opinion's not that big, but because of the edge, I, I feel like there's almost no way you can't play those spots. It's kind of like, like when you play poker, you know, you're the best player at the table and there's four fish and you're like, well, if I play my normal way of playing, I'm going to end up being plus CV for a while here at the table so I can sit here for four hours and just kind of play my normal game. And you can, you don't have to be at the top of your game. You know, you can play at, mm-hmm. at 80% and you can still beat the table, right? So it, it, there are definitely some similarities there. And it's just, when you see an opportunity, if, if you're trying to be profitable, you got to take a shot at that opportunity and, and you got to make sure that you, you manage your bankroll properly to be able to continue to take shots at those opportunities. Now I kind of come from the same background as you. I played poker stars full tilt and I would play six max sit and goes, I would six table them. And then I'd play seven card stud on full tilt. That just ended up being the two games I ended up being really good at. I know a lot of times when you see in the poker world, people throw down hand histories. What could I have done better here? And thousands of people just run to them like, Hey, no, you can do this better. I'll help you out with this. If somebody puts up a losing ticket 
on Twitter, I mean, it just seems like the trolls just come to just destroy that person. And it's just, it's such a negative influence on what, like, I would like to see someone's losing because I want to see what they were thinking. I want to help them. Why do you think that isn't such a thing on Twitter for horse racing? Well, I mean, Twitter for horse racing can be an interesting place. We'll just put it that way. That's very true. <laughs> uh, if you go on some of the poker forums, I, it's just a very communal feeling, right? Everyone is trying to help everybody out. You have a, a, such a large group of people playing poker that you're actually rarely going to play against the people that you're talking with, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. a couple of situations, you know, WPT, WSOP events, where I've definitely played with people that I've talked to um, on, on either Pocket Fives or 2 Plus 2, places like that. But, you know, every single person on Twitter is playing against every single person on Twitter. Um, so there's definitely some people who, who are trying not to help people get better. And, um, you know, it, I think it's also just a difference in how much time people look at. If you think about how much time poker players look at losing hands and studying hands compared to how much time horse players look at losing tickets and races that they've already run, it is night and day. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that every time you lose a, a pick four, pick five sequence, you should look at that sequence and say, okay, why did I lose this? Did I lose this sequence because I missed handicapped a race? Totally possible. Did I lose it because I misstructured the ticket? Totally possible. Um, did I lose it because of bad racing luck? Totally possible, right? But I think most people just kind of, they, they let the race run and then they just move on um, versus really looking at, okay, how can I be better? Not just, not just what did I do wrong, but how can I be better? How can I make sure I don't make the same mistake? You know, yeah, I almost look at it every time I have a losing ticket. You're paying for an education. You might as well learn something. There was the picture, I think, on New Year's Day of some player at a, in a local OTB with just 100 tickets underneath the table. And I'm just like, imagine if he actually took those tickets home and like just tried to study them for just 20 minutes. I'm sure that what he would learn from it would be a lot better than just all those tickets getting swept into a trash can. Yeah, I mean, that's the other, the other part of it is that it's just, it happens so fast in horse racing where you have all these bets and it's just, you, you, don't, you don't have the time to go back and look at it a lot of times. If people don't think they have the time to go back and look at it, and they don't really want to focus on the losers. Um, you know, in poker, you feel like your actions can, can really define the, the end result in, you know, in horse racing and sports gambling. Uh, you can often just say, oh, well, I got unlucky, right? And, and that's, you know, sure, that does happen, but you, you can't you're not going to get unlucky for eight straight months, right? You got to figure out, well, how do I, how do I change how I am doing this? Because simple luck is not the reason I'm losing month over month. A hundred percent. What do you say, Mike, we get talking about, uh, this is a Friday card from Gulfstream. You had three tickets for the early pick five. One was a $3 ticket for 30 bucks, a dollar for 72. And the 50 cent was $108. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about the sequence and like what your edge was going into it? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is an interesting sequence that I want to talk about for a couple of reasons. Um, first off, I think, you know, the, the fourth race where I ended up singling the six horse um, was a race I wanted to talk about because there's originally six horses in the race. Um, and I originally was singled to the three before scratches. Mm-hmm. And after scratches came out, um, three of the speed horses scratched out and it left a, a three horse field, which is somewhere I'm always going to single. Um, I, I think that if you're, you're going, unless you Nah, no, you should almost always single a three-horse field. It just doesn't make too much sense to go much deeper than that because you're losing any type of advantage. And if you don't have an opinion in a three-horse field, you should almost pass the sequence. Um, because it, if you end up using two of the three, you're almost never going to get the price you need, and you're not eliminating enough tickets for the for the money that you're putting into into the sequence. Um, this one specifically was interesting to me because you had four speed horses and three of the four scratched out, leaving just the six as lone speed. Additionally, anytime you have these type of races, you have to look at the jockeys. Um, and I, I ended up with Ired Ortiz Jr. here, and he was facing uh, Torres and Gap Leon. I'll take Ired over those two. Um, and 
ironically, the six ended up stalking because Gaffleyone, these jockeys, they look at the paper too. They knew the six was alone speed. So they both were one in the three cent and the six sat right behind him was able to swoop in for the win. Um, the main reason I want to mention it is you got to look at races after scratches. I, that's something I don't think people do enough of. Um, a lot of times the, the pace will change because of scratches and, and that will really shift on what horses I play. So, so, you know, I, I got a product for racingdudes.com where I put out, uh, pick five tickets and pick four tickets. And those tickets change drastically, uh, before and after the stra- scratches specifically because I, I want to make sure that the pace setup is correct for them. Um, the other thing I wanted to quickly talk through is that, you know, one of the important things that you need to do if you want to want to be profitable long-term is really set it up so that you have multiple tiers of bets. Um, so this one, like you mentioned, I had a 50 cent ticket, a $1 ticket and a $3 ticket. Um, the $3 ticket ended up with three singles is only $30, but if it's one of the, it's one of those tickets where if I'm right, that thing ends up paying out. Um, and this sequence, I was live to about $12,000 on the five in the last race. Uh, so I was able to get through the first four legs, ended up not winning the sequence. And we'll talk about why, because like I said, I like to look back. Um, but it, there's a couple of reasons why I didn't get it home. But th- this is an example of how you can really press your opinions um, when you have them. So, you know, in the 50 cent ticket, I hit the all button in the third leg and I had a single in the fourth leg. Um, but everywhere else, I was at least too deep. In the 50 cent or in the $3 ticket, I had three singles and I was too deep in the third leg uh, because I really liked three of the races. And I, the fourth race, I thought that it could something weird could happen. So um, it just shows how ticket structure can really help you uh, maximize your opinions if you are correct in those races. And that's how you're going to end up being profitable long term. You need to be able to hit some of these for multiple times. If you're, if you're just playing one single 50 cent ticket and you're hoping that you're going to get that ten fifteen thousand dollars score off it to pay for other other tickets, it's just it doesn't happen all that often. It's just not that likely. Being able to hit a five hundred dollar ticket that ends up having all your opinions on it five six seven eight times is a lot easier to do. Now the person, let's say the you know hundred dollar person day player decides, okay, I'm going to play the early pick five for $48. But obviously he can't play it more than once. He's got to build that caveman ticket because it'll take too much of his bankroll away. Why with the ABC method or like, you know, the multiple tickets, do you think that that creates more of an edge? Whereas someone just because you can hit it multiple times. Well, you can, you can really press your opinions. Um, if you, in a five race sequence, if your opinion in all five races is exactly the same, then you're probably not looking at it correctly. Um, you should have races in that sequence where you truly believe that you know it, you, you're locked in, and you should have races where you're almost throwing your hands up, where it's like, yeah, I'm not really sure what's going to happen in this race. Um, I, I have an opinion, but I'm not sure how it is. And, you know, I feel like if you're not able to really separate those two, the sequence probably isn't for you. I mean, the other thing I would say is, it, you know, if you're walking into a, a day at the races with a hundred dollars, a pick five may not be the best bet for you unless you like two or three singles in there. I would focus on the pick fours over the pick fives in that case, because you can build effective tickets at a, at a lower cost and be able to win. Um, you know, to me, the pick five is something where you need to be willing to say, I'm going to spend, you know, I, I rarely will spend less than $250, $300 a day on the pick fives at, at Gulfstream Park. Um, and I think that's around where you need to be spending to be profitable long-term because you have to hit some of these for a pretty good score if you're trying to really make some money doing it. Obviously, race four was your big single. Let's talk about race five, which is where you ended up uh, missing out on the pick five. What do you think you missed in that race? Well, um, I mentioned I like to try and fade favorites, it's, but the biggest gap in my racing, in my specific handicapping is I don't include enough favorites. If you look at sequences that I lose, it's often because I don't have a favorite. Um, this was a favorite I left off that I probably shouldn't have. It was the four-horse Hurricane Breeze uh, out of the Brandon Walsh barn, had Gaff Leone up. 
I really like the five horse uh, lemon drop teeny, and that's why I my sing I singled the five in my pick my big pick four. I singled the five in my pick five. I probably took too big of a stand against the four, and that's really the first issue I, I had against it. The four and five had faced each other going a mile sixteenth at Keeneland, um, and the four horse was able to win, but set a, was able to beat the five, but set a very slow pace on a day where speed was holding. Uh, I ran a career best fire going that day, but the next time I wheeled back at Gulfstream going a mile, which is the distance we were going today. And uh, the horses couldn't handle the, the faster pace up front. Additionally, the five got claimed by Mike Maker for $50,000 and was wheeling back onto the turf for the first time in the Maker barn with Ortiz up. All reasons why I like the horse. Um, but the mistake is I didn't leave myself any outs. I mean, we've, that's one of the things in poker you talk about. Okay, uh, I liked the two quite a bit in the second race. That was a pretty cold single for me. And I ended up going three deep in both my 50 cent and $1 tickets. That was a structure mistake. I, I should have just singled the two there. Um, and looking back on the race and looking at it, I did, but the two is the favorite. And like I've said on this pod already, I'll continue to say, I try and not single favorites. Um, this was an example of where I, I probably cost myself on that one. If I single that two there, I could have easily included the four on, on my tickets, uh, either the 50 cent, the, the dollar or the $3 one, um, if I'd wanted to spread enough. And that's, that's really where I, I think the structuring mistake was not being confident enough to my, my single, the two in the second race, because it was the favorite. And then throwing out the favorite and the last. I mean, there, there's a bunch of reasons why I like the five, six, nine, and ten, which is the end of horses I ended up using on the dollar ticket. But I could have easily included the four on there as well. It would have cost me another uh, what, sixteen bucks, um, and it would have paid almost uh, fifteen hundred. So that's a pretty big mistake, and it's one of those things you got to look at and say, okay, if I really like the rest of this ticket structure enough, I need to be including this four. Um, and that's that's where. That's why I think I made the, the couple mistakes I made. First off, it was not singling the two in the in the dollar ticket, and then it wasn't using the four in any of the tickets. Where I just I left myself too exposed to a horse that has a likely chance of winning the race. Do you think that with most people who play multi race tickets, do you think it's more of a handicapping problem or the structuring problem? Structuring problem. I think most people most people who are listening to this are probably pretty good handicappers. I mean, I, I think the you know, handicapping is. is in my mind, not that difficult. Um, it's, it's tough to find the 20, 30 to one sometimes, but it's not that hard to find the four to one, five to one horses. A lot of people can find those. Um, but it's really about how you build the ticket and how you give yourself the chance to win. Um, I mean, I would say if you're not, if you don't have a single in a sequence, you're, you're, you're probably not structuring that well. Um, if you don't have a lot of times I want to have two singles in a sequence in races where I really like, or I'm, I have one single and I'm too deep in two other races. I mean, you really should in a five race sequence be able to find three races you really like and have a really strong opinion. And, and before the gates break, you're confident your horses are going to get home. Right. Um, and if you do that, then the other two races, it really allows you to spread a lot. And so if you're, you know, two by two by one, that's, you're at a, a $2 base ticket, right? You can use four by four and you're only at 48 bucks. Right. So I'm sorry, 30, 36 bucks. So, you really are allowed to spread quite a bit if you can narrow down three of the races and you have three real strong opinions. Um, the tough part is it's, it's just not fun to pass sequences sometimes. So I, I you know, if people, especially if you're at the track, you're going to probably end up firing, right? So uh, it, it can be tough in that sense, but the number one issue is really structure to, in my mind. I, I think most people can pick a winner. It, it's how do you pick five winners in a row and how do you know when you're not likely to pick the winner? And you're willing to spread out and say, okay, I actually should use all here or I should use four or five horses here because you know, yes, I like horse number one the most, but the difference between one, two, and three is significantly less than, the, you know, in this race than the, the difference between the one and the four in the fifth race. I only need the one. So I, I think structure is the biggest issue. We have guys who, before they come into work for the bet squad at Saratoga, they come in, they got like 50 tickets. They have like seven pick fives, like six, six different tries. Like, and I've just never understood how people can just play 
all those different types of stuff in every single type of race. For me, you kind of almost have to start it from like, okay, do I have a win wager in, in this race? And then do I have, you know, any verticals? And then you should move to the horizontals afterwards. Unless if, like you said, you know, you're only profitable in certain margins of the game. I feel like not enough people do the record keeping, you know, record keeping should be fun away. Cause then you know what you're doing well at. And I well, just think you're dead on, but most people are losing. It's not fun to keep records when you're losing. <laughs> well, that's a hundred percent true. And then the next thing would be playing too many races. Do you think people just want to play every race just for the action? Like, if you really could get it down to playing, I know you're a sequence player, so there's only one or two a day usually for the track, but if you were playing, let's say, a nine-race card, would you want to play three races tops? Man, I, I mean, I'm probably the wrong person to ask that question, just to be honest. I, if I was trying to be profitable, only betting win, I would, I would, then I would say I would only play my singles, right? Because that, to me, is mm -hmm. they would have to be over a certain price. Um, some people ask, you know, when do you bet your singles to win? That is the one thing I'll do. I do bet to win when I have singles, but they have to be at least five to two or three to one. Um, I, I hate betting horses shorter than that simply because, you know, there's enough racing luck that goes into it. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, sometimes you miss out on the, the three to five winner that wins by clouds, right? But uh, I really don't have any interest in playing at three to five and have to sweat out, you know, a $50 win bet where you win 30 bucks back. That to me is not, uh, not long-term a profitable style of, of, of play. So, you know, if I was only going to bet to win and try and bet to win to be profitable, I would probably be playing three or four races a day. Um, and I would probably be looking for horses that are eight or 10 to one that, that make, you know, you hit one or two of those a day. You're, you're way mm -hmm. up. If you hit one every week, you're even right. I mean, that's the thing. People, people want to play favorites because they want to win as often as possible. But the honest truth is that if you don't play long shots, you're not going to win long term, right? You, you have to be able to find big numbers or else you're just not going to be profitable. For me, even I tell people, this is an old Dick Mitchell thing from one of his books. Play 20 race sequences, but play five of them for 100. Let's say you're playing 20 favorites. If you're very selective with your favorites, you can be profitable in, in that spot. It's not going to be a ton of money, but at least you're profitable. That way you kind of know, like, okay, when I pick a favorite, I can really, you know, narrow it down and really be right. I don't think what enough people do is, like when you say a lot of people are losing, so they're not keeping records. Record keeping is the same thing with poker. A lot of people, they... I watch the vlogs on YouTube and they're just like, as soon as they're done, they get up from the table. The first thing they're doing is plugging it in on any one of the, you know, online places. Okay. This is how I did today. This is where I am for the month. This is where I am for the year. This is where I am for the week. So when it comes to record keeping, it's just something that I think should get spoken about more. And I understand people are losing, but it should also be then maybe don't play as many races where I know it was hard for a lot of people. Yeah, it definitely is. And I, I think that if you, a lot of people look at, I, I believe, poker and horse racing differently, too. I think everyone who plays poker really plays because they want to be profitable, right? And, and mm -hmm. they'll, they'll put a lot of time into it. A lot of people who play horse racing um, are doing it for entertainment. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, that's, you know, that's why I played horse race horses for a long time, is I enjoy mm -hmm. going to the racetrack. And, you know, I look at it as I walk in with 100 bucks. If I walk out with anything, it's more than if I went to dinner, right? <laughs> so, 100%. You know, it, it's, it's all about how you're, why you're doing it. And I think a lot of people have to kind of look at it in that manner too. Like if you're going and you're going to have fun and you're going to play every weekend and you have a budget for it, don't worry about records. It's not the point of it. The point of it is to have a good time, you know, if you, but if you really want to improve your game and improve your craft and, and get better, you really have to be taking very, very close records of, of, you know, are you a good winner better? Are you a good exacta better? Should you be focusing on tries? Um, it's funny. I got a text chain with, with some friends and, and we all talk about the different bets we make. And one of the guys is just lights out with exactness. I've never seen anything like it. If he only bet exactness, he'd be a huge winner every year. But he's playing a bunch of other tickets too, right? So 
um, you know, it's really interesting to look at it and then say, okay, how can I really focus in on what I am good at? What do I do well? How would I spend more time doing what I do well instead of spending the, the you know, using all that time that I'm using on things that I don't do well and, and making bets in that manner. So I, it goes back to just understanding what you're good at. If you really want to, you know, if you want to be profitable and if you want to make this something where it's, it's a, a plus thing for you every month, then focus on, on record keeping, what you're good at, how you can win, and then really make sure you dedicate your time to that. Let's flip the script here a little bit, talk about race three in that sequence. That was the race that you kind of didn't seem to have a good handle on, going all, obviously, in the 50-cent ticket. And coming out at the four, I believe, one and was the second choice. Was there any way you could have shortened the ticket down in that spot? Yeah, um, so that that's an interesting ticket. And this is a, a part of a Gulfstream problem. So this is a good example of a favorite I didn't love. The one horse was a favorite in the race, uh, morning line two-to-one favorite. And, you know, probably a pretty deserving two-to-one favorite. But this was a maiden $16,000 going a mile on the turf at Gulfstream, and the horse was a closer. Those are just bad, bad things for that, for that stamp. You know, uh, I, I don't like favorites that are closers. Generally, you know, they're much more likely to get traffic trouble than you have a favorite that's a, that's a front runner. So this is one of those examples where a low-level claimers um, on the turf, drawing the rail, just everything going wrong. It's a closer. It's everything going wrong for this horse. So this is a race where immediately I'm like, okay, how can we beat it? Um, my two top picks are the four and the five, uh, who are 12-to-1 and 15-to-1 morning line. Um, and so I'm looking at this, I'm saying, who else can I make a case for? Well, I kind of liked the seven still scheming, who was uh, a 15 to one uh, morning line, first time starter. And I liked the nine who was four to one. Well, now I've mentioned four of the nine horses in the race and three mm-hmm. of them are 15 to one or longer odds. Right. So that's, then I have to decide, is this a stand race where I'm just going to use the four or five, um, which would have worked out the four ended up being very good and getting back down, or is this going to be a race where I spread? And because of the level, you know, these are, these are, three-year-olds going a mile on the turf at, at Maiden 16, that's a level I'm going to spread more than I will, you know, a, a Don Winters with two 62-day K optional allowance, right? Because mm-hmm. this class, you're going to have more volatility from start to start, um, and you're going to have horses that improve out of nowhere, right? Um, so, like the three horses, 20 to 1, I thought I had a shot winning too. So, I have all these different horses that I have opinions on, but none of them that are, that are strong enough to say, I really want my tickets to be hinged on this specific race. Um, ironically, if I had, it would have worked out, <laughs> but yeah, looking back at it, I still feel the same way. And this is one of those things where I think it's important to go back and look at races. Looking back at it, I don't dislike the all button here because I, I can tell you four horses that are 10 plus to one that I think have a legit shot at winning. The one horse is the most likely winner who will go off as a favorite, but all these things are against it. So, you know, in my mind, that's a good race and a good example of where the all button can be effective. I mean, I love the all button, those 62-5 claimers at, at uh, Gulfstream, too, especially six and a half furlongs, man. Six and a half furlongs races collapse. That's a great all button race, usually. Two more things before we get you out of here. Uh, Tis the Magician broke, it, broke his maiden earlier in the week last week, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yes, he did. <laughs> I know you and Magic are super excited about that. Have you heard anything about plans going forward? Uh, yeah, so he's, uh, he's scheduled to, uh, the plan is to run into the stakes at, uh, Santa Anita going to mile 16th, try and get some derby points. Uh, pretty cool, man. I, I mean, so yeah, you mentioned magic, uh, Curtis Keller is my co-host on magic, the magic Mike show. We do it twice a week, one as a recap, and then one is a pick four sequence where we specifically talk about ticket structure and, and kind of why we end up on horses. Um, but he got me into myracehorse.com, which has been pretty fun, man. It's, it's a cheap way to own racehorses. I, I was part of slam dunk racing, um, with Nick Casado for a while. Um, I still have a couple of horses with them. Um, and that's a great way to do it, especially when you have someone like Nick that you can really trust and knows the game so well. Um, but for me personally, like it, it, you just have to find my racehorse gives you a little more 
you can get in for a lot less first off. So you can get in for like 90 to 150 bucks a horse. Um, but you're able to just kind of pop in and pick any horse you want. And so we, mm-hmm. we've gone to some magician and we each own a piece of him. Um, and then now he might actually be a derby horse. It's kind of crazy. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he's going on to, to a stakes at Santa Anita. Um, and it, it's just, it's a blast, man. It's going to be fun to see what he can do moving forward. He obviously got rocked by honor AP a couple back. He's a legit derby contender. Um, but the last race was, uh, yeah, it got us excited, which would be pretty cool. I'm going to be going to my first derby this year. It'd be crazy to have a starter in the gate. So we'll just, we'll just hope that happens. I am, uh, been looking at my racehorse uh, birthdays in a couple of days, so I'm hoping maybe somebody will, you know, give me a little bit of dough. Maybe I can get a little hundred dollar entry in on one of those horses. The last thing too, I believe you qualified for the NHC earlier in this year. Is that correct? It is. Yeah, I uh, I did not do tournaments at all until about last July, um, and I I won a qualifier for an online tournament for like thirty thousand. Started getting into it, looked into the NHC, uh, actually <laughs> read uh, Peter's book, um, and so that's one of my things I'm working on for the NHC here. I'm starting to do my study and my prep. I'm gonna reread that book again and. Excited to be out there, man. It's going to be a heck of an environment. I have a feeling that I'm going to be behind the eight ball a little bit. Um, I know when I went to my first uh, major poker tournament, you just don't realize the grind that it actually takes mm-hmm. to be able to win one of those things. You sit there for 12, 14 hours a day, and I looked at the schedule for NHC, and we're in a ballroom from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m., three straight days. I and mean, it's a lot of horses that you're watching, a lot of races yeah. you're recapping. And at some point, fatigue actually will come into play. I mean, because your decision-making obviously gets worse and worse. The more tired you are. So that there's going to be an issue of making sure I properly uh, focus for this thing and, and figure out how to make sure I handicap 70 races uh, properly every day and, and not uh, lose and stay, and stay sharp the whole time. Well, I want to say, I really appreciate you for coming on. Where can the people find you on Twitter, Mike? So I am uh, at Sommelbaum, S-O-M-O-B-O-M-B 18, the number one, number eight. Um, and then I, I, you can find articles for me, uh, racingdudes.com. I also provide uh, picks for them every weekend for pick fours and pick fives. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, man. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks to all of our great fans for listening to this show and also my special guest, Mike Somich. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.